Well, the story from the Old Testament that resounds for us, especially among children, as one of those great stories of the victory of God is that account on Mount Carmel between the prophet Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. And that story stands out in our minds for several reasons, one of those being the very dramatic way in which God manifested his power, and that in contrast to the sacrifice offered by those 450 priests, the sacrifice offered by Elijah was consumed by fire that came from heaven, even after that sacrifice had been drenched with water many times over. But what stands out about that account is the kind of sarcasm that is involved as Elijah taunts and ridicules the prophets of Baal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 18, we, we read a little bit of this. Here we read for us in verses 27 to 29 of 1 Kings 18, that it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. And so those prophets cried with a loud voice and cut themselves, according to their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. What this account reveals to us is the the religion of the prophets of Baal. Elijah particularly taunts them using their own perception of their God, Baal. In their greatest imagination, they had invented this God, this false God. But as Elijah indicates and as he points to, this was a limited God. A God who perhaps did not hear their prayers because he was relieving himself somewhere. Or perhaps he was sequestered in a cold, dark place somewhere, enjoying a nap. Or perhaps he was just too far away on a journey, and he could not hear the cries of his servants. Of course, in that context, Yahweh, who is boundless and has no limitations, shows himself to be the one true God. That account reveals to us the very important nature of the true God, His essence, His perfection, in that He is boundless. We call it His omnipresence. And as I said, this is perhaps one of the more neglected perfections of God. We don't appreciate it as as much as we ought. In fact, it's really here in all of God's perfections, but in this one in particular, where our minds are blown away because as creatures, one of the things that we are most acquainted with is boundaries, limitations. So as we consider this attribute, it's very important for us to define it. And when we talk about God's omnipresence, we we recognize that this word, like the other omnis we've studied so far, is made up of two Latin words, omni, which means all, and presentia, which means presence in Latin. And you put those two words together, and omnipresence means all present. But we have to dig down a little bit further, and we can define divine omnipresence this way. The omnipresence of God refers to his limitless, non-spatial existence. God exists everywhere, all at once. To take that a little bit further, we can understand God's omnipresence in this way. God is independent from space. He does not need space to exist. And therefore, because he does not need space to exist, he is truly measureless. 
we can think of it this way, that wherever there is a there, God is fully present. In fact, we can take it even beyond that and say this, that even if there is a place where there isn't a there, God is still there. He has no boundaries. And yet at the same time, though he is not dependent on space for his existence, God is still present within space. And he is present everywhere in space, in the creation that he has made, without any kind of limitation. Wherever he is, he is there in his full, true essence. Now, it helps us to consider for a moment, what is space? How do we define space? This helps us to understand what God is not. How do we define space? Space, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is defined as follows. Space is the dimensions of height, depth, and width within which all things exist and move. Now, that's a good definition, except that it should say all created things. Space is what we could call, in biblical terms, the heavens and the earth which God created and then filled with all kinds of things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then as we read through the rest of Genesis chapter 1, he fills that space with all kinds of different things. Everything from the sun and the stars to the fish in the sea. And eventually he even fills a garden he made with his image bearers. By definition, creatures, you and I, and everything else that has been created are are in some way space-dependent and space-dependent limited. We have boundaries. We, we have limitations. And, and, and we can recognize it in this way that we as creatures cannot be in two places at once as much as our wives would like us to be. We are limited. We can be in two places but never at the same time. In fact, For us to be in two places requires time for us to move. We must move. We can move. Even angels, we read of it in the book of Daniel, can move from one place to another. It takes time and it takes that kind of transfer from one spot to another. But the amazing thing is when we talk about the omnipresence of God is that he does not move. In his essence, he never moves. He is always and fully there. Now, when we talk about omnipresence, we can actually distinguish it in, in a way, and it's, it's helpful to get our minds around this. It all comes down to how we understand God's relationship to space. God's relationship to space. God's relationship to things like measurements of of length and, and distance and height and depth and mass. How does God relate to those things? What is his relationship to space? And actually here, when we talk about God's presence, we can actually slightly distinguish between two related attributes of God. Theologians, based on the biblical witness, have, have, have actually distinguished between omnipresence and another attribute which also describes God's relationship to space. And let's look at that one first. We can say that God has immensity, or he is immense. The attribute of immensity. And what we mean by that is that God transcends all spatial limitations. And he cannot be measured by height, length, depth, width, mass. He cannot be measured by any conceivable form of measurement because he defies boundaries, limitations. He exists above and beyond. And so the emphasis when we talk about the immensity of God, the emphasis is on his transcendence. God is above and beyond. 
He is above and beyond, wholly other, completely different from our mode of existence in which we only know limitation, boundaries. And then when we talk about the other aspect of God's relationship to space, we, call, we, we, we talk about his omnipresence. And this one is actually slightly different than God's immensity. When we talk about God's omnipresence, we are affirming that God is present in his perfect essence at each and every point of space. So God's immensity emphasizes that God is above and beyond. He exists above and beyond all spatial features, his, his transcendence. When we talk about omnipresence, we're talking about God's existence within that space. Because God, being perfect, exists there too. He exists within space, and he does so perfectly at every point. And this particular attribute emphasizes what we say is God's imminence. If his transcendence is that God exists above and beyond, that's his relationship to space, God's imminence is that God fills every space, though he remains distinct from it. One 17th century theologian by the name of Edward Lay summarized it this way. Great statement. Referring to God's immensity, he says this, quote, Immensity is such a property of God by which he cannot be measured or circumscribed by any place. He fills all places without multiplying or extension of his existence. He is neither shut up in any place nor shut out from any place, but is immense. He is without place and above place, present everywhere without any extension of matter, but in an unspeakable manner. What he's referring to there in that last statement in an unspeakable manner is is the how of this. Scripture does testify to the that It testifies the fact that God is immense and omnipresent, but how this can be in a way that we can comprehend this is simply beyond our reach. It is true, but how of that we cannot speak. We affirm it by faith based on God's own revelation, but can we comprehend this? Can we fit this reality within our minds? And the answer to that is no, because God remains incomprehensible, and this is what makes him perfect. As omnipresent, as I said, God is wholly present with all of his being in every point of space. He is not diffused throughout space, He is not stretched as if he has to reach from one corner of the universe he is created to the other and somewhere in between is the center of his existence and the appendages, so to speak, are limited versions of his existence. That is not what the scriptures teach. And because he is fully present everywhere, whether that is in the farthest corner of the universe, millions of light years away, as much as he is present here, he equally holds all things together by the power of his will. So there in some dark corner of the universe, which we will never see, God is fully present there, holding together that star holding together that solar system just as much as he is holding together the Milky Way galaxy and our world as we know it. But what is interesting to note as well is that while God is equally present everywhere, he is not bound to act the same way to his creation everywhere. He does not move, and yet he does. God does not move in his existence, 
And yet, we will talk about movements of God. What does that mean? Well, that means that although God does not move from one place to another, as the prophets of Baal conceived of their God, God does not move in that way, and yet he does manifest his presence to his creation in different ways and in different places. That is why we can talk about a great movement of God, a great revival that can break out in one place where we would say that God is acting in in extraordinary ways to bring sinners to salvation en masse, and why in a totally different place, there are no conversions at all. Yet God is equally present in both, and yet he can manifest himself in a way that moves sinners to repentance in one place, and yet not manifest that full, true presence in the same way elsewhere. Again, that is owing to the perfection of our God. Now, as we talk about this, it's important to contrast this biblical testimony with ideas or conceptions of God's presence that are not true, that are not biblical. And so, we have to also answer the question, what God's presence does not mean. And we can start off with the one that we've already considered with the prophets of Baal, the pagan conception that God exists within space. So you can look at it this way. According to the prophets of of Baal, God had to be summoned from somewhere, from a journey, from something he was doing to manifest himself there on the top of Mount Carmel. He wasn't there at the moment, and so the prophets of Baal had to hearken him to come. Or if you're familiar with Greek mythology, Zeus was said to to exist upon Mount Olympus, and from time to time he would come down from Mount Olympus, take with him the god Hermes, and look upon the actions of men. Well, that's paganism, and it limits God to a particular sphere or location within space. God is in that case, severely limited. Another erroneous idea of God's presence is to think that God's presence is synonymous with space itself. This is the view of what we call pantheism, that God is is everything. And the idea of this is that wherever God is, that is creation. There is no distinction. There is no creator-creature distinction. The one is the other, and the other is the one. And so God is the trees, and the trees are God. And in this case, wherever there is space, those who are pantheists believe that that space, that mass, that height or depth, that is God himself. Again, that limits God It makes them out to be the same as the boundaries of the universe. Another view is is this, that God exists outside of space, but not in it. And this is the view of movements like deism or various philosophical movements, which believed that God, because he's spiritual and our world is material, that there is no interaction between those two different dimensions. God may exist, the philosophers would say. It's very possible he does, but because he is so wholly other, there's no possible way that he has anything to do with the material world. The material world is is like its own thing, and God exists outside of it, but not within it. Again, the view of deism, that God created the world and set in motion the, the laws of the universe and then steps away and essentially has nothing to do with the world and the universe as it is. It's all delegated over to these impersonal laws of nature. That too limits God. It makes him so transcendent that he is not perfect. 
It makes him so transcendent that he cannot be within that which he creates. A fourth erroneous idea is that God stretches himself to occupy all of space. So the idea is this, that God creates the universe, and perhaps even in a sense, the universe is eternal, and God simply fills the universe, and because he fills the universe, that is what makes him God. So various religions would think this way, various philosophers would think this way, that that God simply stretches, he's diffused himself like a gas in a room. He's diffused himself within the universe that is either eternal or that he has created. And when you think of the boundaries of the universe, however many billions of light years apart, those are the same boundaries of God himself. His, His existence goes right up to the edge of the universe And if that universe is continuing to expand, so is he. If it's shrinking, so is he. But his limitations are set with the limitations of space. There is a fifth erroneous idea. And it's the idea that God is just a little bigger than space. That God is maybe a couple of light years beyond space or maybe even a couple of million years beyond space, but that God still has some kind of spatial boundaries. It's just that he enjoys the advantage of being bigger than the universe. The problem is, with that view as well, is that you see the boundaries. That God is still being perceived in spatial terms, and he is being compared to the spatial features of the universe, and God is incomparable. So how are we to understand God's relationship to space? Where do we gain our knowledge from? And we gain that knowledge from the clear testimony of God's Word. And as we see right from Genesis 1 verse 1, all the way to the very end of Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, we see this consistent testimony that God is both immense and omnipresent. So let's look at that biblical testimony. And when we turn to the Scriptures from where we get these conclusions, when we turn to the Scriptures, we can look at all of those texts which describe God's relationship to space, and we can put them essentially into four categories. First, we can look at those texts which describe God as the creator of space. Those texts which testify to God's creation of space. It's not that space has eternally existed. It's not that God's existence is dependent upon space. It's that God himself is prior to space, eternally existing, But at a point, he has brought time and matter and space into existence. He is the creator, Genesis 1 verse 1, for example. We also can see those texts which describe God's relationship to space by seeing how he is described as the ruler of space. He owns the universe. He owns the heavens. They are his They belong to him, and he is the one who exercises free control without any kind of obstacles. He exercises free control over everything within that space. He is its ruler. Third, we can see those texts which, at the same time, emphasize God's transcendence over space, that he is distinct from it. He is not synonymous with it. But he is different. He is wholly other from space. He exists above and beyond. And then fourthly, we can see those texts that also testify very clearly that God is within the space he has created. He is not the same thing as that space. He is not somehow mixed in his essence with that space. Yet he is fully present everywhere at every point, at every measurement within that space. Those are the texts that testify 
to his imminence. Now, I'm not going to categorize the texts as we go through them now, but you're going to be able to to see some of these, these ingredients, these four categories throughout these texts. Sometimes the text will contain multiple witnesses to these categories, sometimes only one. But let's begin at the very beginning, Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that statement is profound because in that simple sentence... Everything that has space is included there. Everything that exists within that space is implied in those words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. Moses says this, Know therefore today, and take it to your heart, that Yahweh, He is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and earth and all that is within it. Notice the extremes that the psalmist here, or that Moses here, is, is describing. On the one hand, heaven belongs to God, but not just heaven. In fact, the highest possible point in the heavenlies, it belongs to God. And on the other hand, earth belongs to God, and not just earth, but everything in it, even the tiniest, tiniest grains of sand, even the tiniest molecules contained in earth, it all belongs to God. 1 Kings 8, verse 27, in Solomon's great dedication of the temple, where so many of God's attributes are extolled, we have these words in 1 Kings 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Solomon at that point in his life, he understood it correctly. Even though he had labored to build that special meeting place and God's hand of blessing was upon it, that would be the place where God would manifest his movement. He would manifest his presence. Nonetheless, Solomon recognized that that house couldn't possibly contain God. Instead, as Solomon himself recognizes the wisest man who has ever lived. He recognizes that not even the distant reaches of the solar systems can contain God. Psalm 97 verse 9, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all God's. We come to Psalm 139, that wonderful psalm where the psalmist extols both the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. In the first six verses, the psalmist extols his omniscience and then says this beginning in verse 7. And and as I read this, notice, this is not for David a problem. For the worshiper of Yahweh... For the child of God, these realities are not a problem. They're a blessing. And he says this, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, 
For I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. What a beautiful testimony of the child of God. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3, the eyes of Yahweh are in every place watching the evil and the good. And that idiomatic expression to the eyes, that anthropomorphism, that that special kind of language that is used, that is common to us, eyes, we know eyes, but is used to describe God in order to emphasize some aspect which really in its essence is unexplainable to us. The, 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 the wise man here says the eyes of the Lord are in, every, are in every place not to emphasize so much his omniscience as to emphasize his omnipresence. They are everywhere because he is everywhere. He sees everything. A few verses later in verse 11... Solomon goes on to say, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before Yahweh. How much more the hearts of men. Go to the darkest, most remote part of human existence. Sheol and Abaddon. And if God is present there, then think how much more is he in the hearts of his image bearers. Isaiah 57 verse 15 For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with a contrite and lowly of spirit. Here we see wed together so beautifully both the transcendence and the imminence of God. He is both immense and omnipresent. He is both transcendent and imminent. He is both high and above and in. And this is the great testimony of the book of Isaiah over and over and over again, that he is the holy one, the the one who is holy other, yet he is the holy one of Israel. The one who exists in transcendence and yet has in that mysterious way, in that gracious way, has attached himself to the limitations of a people and a place called Israel. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 to 24. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God who is far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places, So that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? When we turn to the New Testament, we find these truths simply assumed, and they come out in in various places, particularly with reference to Christ himself. Matthew 28, verse 20, the resurrected Lord says this, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's not just a pep talk to get them motivated. It is a promise that in the the endeavor to take the gospel message of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, as they would move out of Jerusalem and move in all directions, Jesus is promising to his disciples that in whatever direction they go, north, south, east, west, he is with them. He is present. In Acts chapter 7, verses 48 to 50, we have a a snapshot of Stephen's sermon And this is what he says in verses 48 to 50. He says, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, he's quoting here from 
Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all of these things? In Acts chapter 17, as Paul addresses the Areopagus there on Mars Hill, the most learned, cultured elite of Greco-Roman society, he actually quotes from one of their prophets and says, in him we live and move and exist. Here was the reality. The prophets had warped that, re, that, that, that truth and, and, and taken it to apply it in some limited way to their god Zeus. But the apostle Paul takes that and says, you know what, that's true, but you can't account for it. It's true because the one true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, exists. In Him we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1 verse 17, He that is the Son is before all things, and notice this phrase, and in Him, not He in them, but in Him all things hold together. Again, sometimes our perception is, is that the, the biggest expanse is the universe and that Christ is somehow diffused through that universe and that somehow by holding things together from the different corners of the universe, he's able to keep it all working. But that's not the case. No, the universe is in him. In him, all things hold together. There's many more texts that we could turn to, but Let me quote from A.W. Tozer, who got it right here. He said this, quote, Few other truths are taught in the Scriptures with as great as clarity as the doctrine of divine omnipresence. Those passages supporting this truth are so plain that it would take considerable effort to misunderstand them. They declare that God is imminent in His creation, that there is no place in heaven or earth or hell, where men may hide from his presence. They teach that God is at once far off and near, and that in him men move and live and have their being. As I said, this is a perfection of God that is often downplayed or ignored. But when you think of that statement, in him we live and move and have our being, it immediately testifies to the incomprehensibility of God. We know our status as creatures. We have limits. God has none. Now, what does that require of us? What, how should we respond in light of this amazing truth? Let's look at several responses that are appropriate in light of the omnipresence of God. Number one, there is no such thing as private sin. God sees every sin in all its vividness. There is no place to hide. What's interesting to note is that when you go around and you see all of those wicked, immoral buildings, especially here in Los Angeles, which enclose all kinds of deeds of immorality, they're windowless. The idea is to create a context of secrecy. But you can take it even further and you know your own heart and you know the place where you love to go to sin. If you cannot find that quiet, secret room, you at least will retreat into your own heart. And the grievous nature of sin is that it tells you God cannot see or that God is not here. You're okay. Sin is deceitful because God is there. He is right there. Every moment that you sin, He is there. 
Proverbs chapter 5 verse 21 says this, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. We read this already, Proverbs 15 verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God who is far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him? And yet let's admit the fact that when we reflect upon those times in recent memory where where we have succumbed to temptation, there is this feeling, this idea that somehow God is not there. And temptation offers this idea that, that perhaps God is not seeing, he is not present. But what the omnipresence of God reinforces to us is that God is just as present in that moment of temptation as in your highest victory. Remember that. He is there. There is no such thing as secret sin. You may be able to keep it out of public spotlight for a while. You may be able to keep it from your wife, from your friends, from your children. But he sees. He knows. He's there. There is no private sin. Augustine stated it this way. He said, when, when you wish to do something evil... You retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in your room, you fear some witness from another quarter. You retire into your heart where you meditate. But he is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. From yourself, whither will you flee? Will you not follow yourself wherever you shall flee? But since there is one more inward, even than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but to God reconciled. There is no place At all, whither you may flee, will you flee from him? Flee to him. And that is the second response that omnipresence demands from us. And it's this, meditating on those last words of Augustine, God is never too far away to save. He is never too far away to save. On the one hand, the truth of God's omnipresence is a terror to every sinner. Holy God, perfectly holy and righteous, is there everywhere. And we as those who know our own hearts realize that is bad news by itself. But God's omnipresence is also what compels faith. As Just as Augustine said, the only place where you can go from God angry, the only place where you can flee from God righteous, God holy, is to God reconciled. And that is brought out in some wonderful texts, particularly in the Old Testament. Psalm 145 verse 18. I love these words. The Lord is... Near. The Lord is near to all those who call upon him, to all who call upon him in in truth. It's not because his existence is more in one place than another, but he manifests himself, particularly he manifests his saving power. He draws near to those who cry out, who recognize him to be that holy God and who recognize they cannot flee from him so they can only flee to him and he promises that he will be near. Isaiah 59 verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save nor is his ear dull his ear dull so that it cannot hear think back to those prophets of baal 
They clamored and cut themselves trying to get the attention of Baal, whose arm was too short and whose ear was too dull. He could not hear them. He was too far away. But what Isaiah does here is take that picture of a hand that is reaching up for help. And he's saying that God's hand will never just just miss it. Never To the one who reaches out, that hand is always there. It is never too short to save. Never. No matter in the darkest place of life, no matter in the deepest pit of sin, his arm is not too short. He is there in all of his saving power. And his ear is not too dull, he's not too distant, that he won't hear that whimper That prayer that hardly sounds like anything. In fact, it doesn't even sound to the ears. And yet it is that cry of the soul for help. Lord, help me. Save me from this ugly, wretched sinner that I am. He is not dull to hear. And of course, that is so beautifully and vividly manifest to us. In that name, Emmanuel, that is prophesied in Isaiah 7.14 and then is realized in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 where where Matthew writes this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What a precious name. Not only does he make himself present in the, in the, to the cry of the desperate sinner, but he sends his own son, he sends his own son to be powerfully manifested in the person of Jesus, to walk on this earth, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead for our propitiation. God's nearness manifested in the most astounding way Infinite God taking upon himself human flesh, always remaining infinite and immense, and yet in some mysterious way able to take on limited human form, remaining both omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, and and yet taking on the limits of a man. And that's why Charles Wesley, in that wonderful Christmas hymn, wrote these words, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Third, The child of God is never alone. The omnipotence, the immensity of God teaches we who are the redeemed, we who have been saved in spite of ourselves, that we are never alone. To be one of God's redeemed is to possess the promise of God's manifest presence in a special way and that he promises to be with us, not only to save us, but to preserve us and to bring us to glory. That is the great declaration of the New Testament over and over again, particularly in the words of the Apostle Paul, whose whose great doctrine is expressed by that idea of the believer being in Christ and Christ in him. We see it even in the Old Testament, that wonderful text that is stated by David, that, that Old Testament saint, that one who had been redeemed in those days. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then you get that wonderful text in Romans 8. Right? 8 verse 35 asks the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And that love isn't just some kind of abstract thing. That love of Christ is manifest particularly in his abiding presence with us and in us. Who will separate us from that? Paul asks the question and then says this. He stakes his whole life on it. 
He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. In response to this wonderful truth, Spurgeon said it this way, he said, Emmanuel, God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. Let him come to you suddenly and do you but whisper the word, God with us, and back he falls, confounded and confused. God with us is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayers? How could the missionary go to the foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor own his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us, Emmanuel. God with us is eternity's sonnet. Heaven's hallelujah. And the shout of the glorified, the song of the redeemed, the chorus of the angels, and the everlasting oratio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. We possess this promise as the redeemed, but we don't always believe it, do we? We walk through those valleys of the shadow of death, and unlike David, in that particular instance, we doubt. We doubt, and we're like the psalmist who has to come back to this wonderful perfection of God and preach to himself. Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Like the psalmist here, we must preach to ourselves this doctrine of God's omnipotence. We must preach to ourselves that as those who are redeemed, we have received the promise, Emmanuel is ours. That promise is ours in Christ Jesus. And that, yes, when the tempter comes our way, we say, Emmanuel. And when the hard circumstance comes, we say, Emmanuel. When the cancer comes, we say, Emmanuel. When we don't know what tomorrow holds, we say, Emmanuel. And then we preach it to ourselves and we say, Why are you possibly in despair, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Fourth, worship is necessary in every place. Worship is necessary in every place because God is everywhere. Psalm 16, verse 8 and 11 say this, I have set the Lord continually before me. That is an act of worship. And he says, the Lord is continually before me. Why? Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. He recognizes that the omnipresence of God at his right hand is reason for him in every circumstance, in every place of life, to set the Lord before us, to put him in the forefront of our minds, to set our eyes, so to speak, on him. It goes on to say in verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 139 verse 7, we read this already. David asked, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? And as a child of God, that is not something he asks as if it's some kind of burden, but it's something that he asks in delight. I can go nowhere. You're always there. And it leads him to worship. Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he said, after she says to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place when, where, where, where men ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
the reality of it is, as we understand the omnipresence of God, every single circumstance, every single place in life, from the backyard to the garage, to the kitchen, to the commute, every place becomes a worship center, a place to enjoy the presence of God and to recount the fullness of joy in that place. Stephen Charnock said, let us know that as wheresoever the fish moves, it is in the water. Wheresoever the bird moves, it is in the air. So wheresoever we move, we are in God. As there is not a moment, but we are under his mercy, so there is not a moment that we are out of his presence. Let us therefore look upon nothing without thinking who stands by, without reflecting upon him in whom it lives, moves, and hath its being. And that is that worshipful attitude where we see everything in God's presence. Fifth, God's manifest presence must be our greatest desire. We know that God is everywhere. And when I refer to this manifest presence here, I'm referring not just to a better understanding that God is with us in his existence, but a manifest presence that is in glory. The believer's longing is not merely just to understand his omnipresence now, but it is to long for his manifestation of glory to us in that moment when we will be with him forevermore. Psalm 73, the psalmist is yearning for this kind of manifest presence. He says, beginning in verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was a senseless and ignorant animal. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I will tell of your works. He longed for heaven. He longed for glory as much as he recognized the presence of God in his life at the moment. And then, of course, we have that wonderful statement in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, which describes that yearning that should be on all of our hearts. As much as we can enjoy the goodness of God's presence in our life now, this is not our best lives. This is not the experience of his best presence. That is to come. And we read of it described with these words. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That is what waits for us, for us who are in Christ. Men, let me ask you this evening, right now, will you be in that throng? Will you be in that place where God's glory will be manifest unlike ever before and it will be pure joy? If not, God's God's presence will be manifest to you, but it will not be in joy. It will not be in peace. It will not be in beauty. It will be in judgment. It will be God wrathful. Where will you spend your eternity? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for these precious truths that we can address you as Emmanuel. That 
simple title that communicates so much, that represents the truth which indeed unlocks so many of our problems. Whether it is in the moment of temptation or the moment of fear, we who have received your grace can simply say, Emmanuel, God is with us. And even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can say, Emmanuel. We can say, I fear no evil because you are with us. Oh, Lord, teach us that truth in far more profound ways than we have ever known before. And as you do, may you lift our hearts to more perfect praise, for you are worthy. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.